This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. For 23 years, the unsolved murder of this woman was thought to be the result of a burglary gone wrong. The case would remain cold until 2009 when DNA evidence pointed to someone who was in very close proximity to the investigation. This is the Sherry Rasmussen story. Morning, Megan. Oh, good morning. Thank you, know, you for getting up so early for me today. I know. Uh, I don't know if our listeners know this, but uh, I think we've said it before. Yeah, probably. Like you're, you're the morning person and I'm not. And I'm still stuffy. Well, you can hear a little bit. I've been up for seven hours. How long have you been awake for? Uh, about an hour and a half. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Megan. Well, today the case we're covering has been covered by some other podcasts. And you know I don't love to do that. But we've had many requests for this case. And it was also a runner up in our Patreon poll. I remember. And this story is one that I have followed as well. So I will say I do know the case this time, but I bet you'll bring something new to it. I'll try. All right, Megan, Sherry's case is one from the mid 80s and it captured the media's attention. But I bet you a lot of our listeners don't know it because they are so young. That's probably true, (laughs) but I know it. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. So Sherry was very bright growing up. And this was evidenced by the fact that at the young age of 16, she was already attending college. Oh, I didn't remember that. Wow. And she graduated before even turning 20. From there, she went on to get her master's degree in nursing. So very bright, very ambitious young woman. Really impressive. Sherry got promoted to director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, where she was not only head nurse, she also held teaching classes for new nurses. You're kidding. And this is like in her 20s. Yeah, she was, like I said, she was doing a lot. And in the summer of 1984, when she was 27, she met 25-year-old John Rutten. Now, John was a recent graduate of UCLA, where he studied mechanical engineering. John was athletic, handsome, charismatic, he was originally from San Diego. Sherry was originally from Arizona, but, you know, living in the area now. Friends would say that their connection was pretty immediate and they deeply cared for one another. Again, they're both young, successful, attractive people. And they got married in November of 1985 and lived together in Van Nuys, California. And mm. this is a neighborhood that, for those of you who don't know, this is a neighborhood in the central San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The morning of Monday, February 24th, 1986, John left for work while Sherry was still in bed. So normally Sherry would be up and about. It was around 7.30 a.m. But she said, you know what? She might call out sick from work today. She was just kind of feeling like she didn't want to. She had a training to do at work and she wasn't really feeling it. Some sources say that she had a minor injury from working out. Either way, she wasn't very ill, but she was. She told John there's a chance she was going to call out that day. She needed a mental health day. I understand that. Yep. So John left for work around 7.20, 7.30, and Sherry stays in bed. A few hours later, John tried to call home to check in on Sherry, but there was no answer. So he just assumed that she had ended up going to work after all. However, he then tried her at work, and her secretary said that she had not been there all day. So again, he tries to reach her at home. He wasn't overly concerned. And I know some of you are saying, well, why not try her cell phone? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was no cell phone. Yeah, there were no cell phones. And, you know, I'm sure you remember there was a point where 
if you couldn't reach someone, you would just leave them a message and you wouldn't talk to them for hours until they got home. Can you believe that? Yeah. So, you know, Sherry, he wasn't concerned. Maybe instead of going to work, you know, she's running some errands, she's doing whatever. But, right. you know, he heads home from work at his normal time. He stopped doing a few errands on his way home. But when he eventually arrived home, it was sometime around 6 p.m. And when he gets home, he sees that the garage door was open and Sherry's car was not there. Her car was gone? Her car was gone. I don't so, remember that. Okay. Yeah. So he doesn't, I don't think he's really concerned. Oh, I thought she was out enjoying yeah, her day. Just, but he was surprised maybe that the garage was left open, right. but whatever. He also noticed, though, a few shards of broken glass on the pavement near the garage entrance. Okay. Again, not concerned because I think a week prior or so, she had hit an antenna on the garage door. I, I guess he didn't put it past her. Like maybe she smashed a window. Again, well, you know, they live out. there. Things yeah. happen in a house. Exactly. But when he went towards the garage entrance to the house, that's when he saw that the door was ajar. So the couple used their garage door kind of as the main entry way for themselves because that's where their cars were. It's like you and Alan used to do that in your old house. Oh, yeah. I would only use the front door if someone was coming over. Right. So the same for, you know, them. They didn't really use the front doors. And I say that for a reason. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Upon entering the home, John saw Sherry on the floor of the living room. She was barefoot in her bathrobe. And at first quick glance, he thought perhaps she was sleeping. However, Megan, when he got closer, it became very clear that she was deceased. Not only was she battered and, of course, bloody, she had no pulse and she was cold to the touch when he tried to attend to her. He also noticed that there was a very obvious bullet hole in the center of her chest. Oof, okay. Yeah, so the scene clearly indicates a struggle at this point because there was shattered glass, things were thrown around, things were knocked over, there was some blood smeared on the floor and the walls. There were no signs of forced entry, though, but it, it is clear what happened. It's always interesting that there, when there's no signs of forced entry. Yes. I'm going to, you know, keep that in mind, right? Uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. Yeah. So as you would expect, John immediately called 911 and investigators flood the scene and they start collecting evidence. Now, because of the state of the crime scene, as I mentioned, things were strewn about and also based on Sherry's injuries, it was clear that this woman really fought for her life. She put up a fight. An investigator also quickly noticed that there was a blanket on a nearby chair that had a bullet hole in it, and it had what is known as powder burns. So powder burns are simply a type of burn caused by the exposure to gases that are expelled from the muzzle of a firearm as it's fired. So basically, this just suggests close proximity when a firearm was discharging. Got it. Investigators also noted that there were three shots to Sherry's chest. Two were clearly contact wounds. And again, these are the kind where the gun was placed point blank against her chest and fired twice using that blanket to muffle the sound. Wow. So they were able to kind of put together what was going on. Two 38 caliber bullets were recovered from Sherry's body. The third bullet had passed through Sherry and was found nearby. As I mentioned, it was clear that she had put up a fight. She had several wounds to her face and her head, many wounds to her hands and forearms, of course, indicating defensive wounds. Right. There was also a bite mark on her inner left forearm. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Okay. Now, this would be swapped for saliva samples and a cast would be taken for a possible tooth comparison. Right. Sherry's car was missing. Remember I said her car wasn't in the garage? Yeah. So her missing car was actually found about a week later. It was unlocked with keys in the ignition and parked about two miles from the home. So this is why they thought it was also a burglary or robbery gone wrong because her car was gone, right? Yeah, I mean, the initial theory was that someone had come to burglarize the home. They were quickly able to see that the front door was unlocked. So, of course, that could mean that Sherry unlocked it right. for someone. But it seems that it was a surprise attack given that Sherry was in her nightgown and robe. So you would think if she was answering the door for, you know, maybe she did put the 
bathrobe on. Someone was at the door. So it's either someone she knows or the door was left unlocked. And they think that both people are probably at work because most burglars also surveil like the area and yeah. know like the schedules. So they come in thinking she's going to be gone like she is yeah. every day and she's there. Yeah. And also John had a friend come over the day before and he recalled perhaps that the door was unlocked because the friend came in through the front door and he said he did not check the front door if it was locked because they don't usually use that door. Okay. The problem is, though, nothing was missing other than Sherry's car, which they later found, and the couple's marriage license. Kind of strange, bizarre. right? bizarre. Okay. The other thing of note that maybe could lend itself to the burglary theory. So we're going back and forth here. Is it a burglary? Is it not? So not much missing. Seems strange. But they did find a stack of stereo equipment out of place stacked up by the door. So perhaps the robbers left in a hurry and they left the valuables behind. Okay. So the police, you know, they were interviewing neighbors, family members, and friends, but they had no solid lead. So because of no other leads, this robbery gone wrong theory just got stronger. Of course. You'll probably talk about this, but are there witnesses? Yeah, we're getting there right now. Okay. During the investigation, there was a connection made to a series of break-ins that happened in the area. Mm. The suspects were described as two Latino men. And in one case, they had assaulted a woman and they also carried a thirty-eight caliber gun. So this sounds like a similar M.O. and investigators are feeling like, okay, we're on to something here. Right. You know, the similar crime supports their initial theory, burglar gone wrong. So they say, okay, so the, you know, the perps came to rob the place. Sherry heard someone in the home, came downstairs, and that's when she was attacked. Right. Okay. Investigators also learned that at 9.45 a.m., a neighbor noticed that the garage door was open without any cars. So this gives us a timeline. That same neighbor noticed that the garage door was closed at 8 a.m. So it seems like sometime between when John left. When did John leave again? About 7.20, 7.30. So this is a pretty short window. The, it's a tight timeline. It makes yeah. you think someone might have been watching, right? That does make me think that, yeah. Also that day around noon, two men who the neighbor believed were gardeners in the area gave her and her husband a purse that they had found, and it turned out to be Sherry's purse. They found an abandoned purse laying in a neighbor's yard and the two men, you know, they tried to go to Sherry's home because they opened up the purse and they found Sherry's belongings. So this does look like a burglary then because you said nothing was, uh, not everything was taken. Nobody noticed, but her her purse is taken and her car is taken. So it, on the surface, I could see exactly why it looks like a yes, burglary. Yes, but in the purse, nothing seems to be missing. Okay. So now right. you're wondering, is it staged? I don't know. I'll have to see. Well, I'm not wondering because I kind of know, but okay, I, can gotcha. see why, mm -hmm. I can see why this is looking like a burglary. Yes. I get it. The only other eyewitness, or I guess you could say ear witness, was a woman who was cleaning a home nearby, and she said she heard something that sounded like two people fighting. She heard something fall, and she says this was around 12.30 p.m. Now, she says she just assumed it was a domestic dispute, and she did not want to get involved. Well, 12.30 p.m. would be way too late anyway. Yeah, so, you know, we know when you hear, you know, when you have eyewitnesses, ear witnesses, they're not right. always accurate. But again, this is just somebody who says that they heard a few thumps, they heard a scream. Unfortunately, they did not call for help because as we see too often, people don't want to get involved, but perhaps, you know, we should be getting involved a little more, right? I think so. Sometimes people don't think it's anything though either. Like we live in, right now I'm living in an apartment. I can't tell you how often we hear noises that- But if you heard a woman scream- Oh, that's different. That's no, no, different. That's, that's way different. Yeah. yeah. Now, remember that bite mark? This was a little bit confusing because if the theory is that there were two male robbers that came into Sherry's home and then attacked her when they were surprised to see her, this is kind of strange because we typically see bite mark with female offenders during a struggle. Mm. So they have to change their theory a bit. 
Okay, so maybe they just had a third person with them and that third person was a female and perhaps, you know, this female is the one who bit Sherry. Why can't it be a male though? Like Bundy was a biter. Yeah. It could be, but she wasn't sexually assaulted. Oh, right. So I think they, and we're speculating too, but I think they speculated probably similarly that the bite mark was probably done more so in um, in a defensive way. Got it. Yep. Then in, you know, because I have a feeling because Sherry was pretty fit. So at some point she could have gotten a hold of her attacker and then put her hand around the attacker's neck and the attacker could have bit her to get away. Yeah. Okay. So you might be asking, well, what about John? Who's typically the first person looked at? I mean, obviously, he's obviously he's going to be like top suspect. The spouse is always the first person or those closest to the victim. Yeah, of course. John was actually ruled out fairly quickly. He was distraught, which doesn't really mean anything. But more importantly, he had an airtight alibi. But in addition to his alibi, there was no motive, no insurance, no evident trouble in their relationship. How does he have an airtight alibi? His alibi is that he left in the morning. I don't think he was at work. Yes, but he could have killed her and then gone to work. He could have. I'm saying I know they established somewhat of a timeline, but I don't think that's an airtight alibi. Yeah, I guess. And and I don't think he's you know, I know I I don't think that means he's guilty. But I'm saying that's not an airtight alibi that you went to work and then you came home. That's what a lot of people have claimed when they. But as is the case, a lot of times we don't know what the police files look like. No, of course. Right. Maybe they had surveillance of him going in, going out. But you're right. We don't know the... Ex- and they were able to say time of death, they were able to estimate that it was probably later than that. But I think that's a valid point. I understand why they actually did rule him out eventually. But usually he would have come under, I would say, a lot more scrutiny than he did. Yeah, they were very... Yeah, I agree. They were quick. And who knows why? I mean, he had a tough time. He, of course, they were... I don't, did I, I think I mentioned this. I hope I did. But they were only married for three short months when right. this happened. Yeah. So, you didn't say that, but I knew they were newlyweds. Okay. So he quit his job and he moved very soon after the murder. He moved with his parents in L.A. And this raised suspicion for some. But for others, it's understandable because he wanted to start over. He was traumatized. So Yeah, that doesn't raise suspicion for me. I just think, why would you want to return to a home or a town where your wife was murdered? Yeah. And although a few tips had come in, investigators weren't really getting any closer to figuring out who murdered Sherry. Again, they had this robbery theory, but there's no, they're not finding evidence to support this. And Sherry's family was getting very frustrated with the investigation. And they felt that the police really had tunnel vision, right? The police were only looking into this one theory and not going outside this. In fact, they never even interviewed Sherry's family and friends. Oh, that's weird. Like, how do you, you need to establish a victim's profile. They should have interviewed family, friends. I I hope they interviewed all the neighbors. It sounds like they did. No, Sherry's family, you know, say they never looked, they never looked into Sherry's family and friends at all. They should be looking at them not only just as suspects, but again, to establish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is victimology. The family went as far as to offer a $10,000 reward for information because they were getting so frustrated. They were particularly focused on a woman named Stephanie Lazarus. Okay, who's Stephanie and how do they, uh, why is she the person they're interested in? Okay, so I'm going to first tell you a little bit about who she is, and then I'll get to why the family is putting pressure on the police to look into this woman. Okay. So Stephanie is a woman from Simi Valley, California. And she actually attended UCLA with John, and the two had lived in the same dorm together. Oh, yeah. I see where this is going. They actually hooked up um, on and off for many years. They were kind of what you would say friends with benefits. Right. She more into him by a lot of accounts. Right. In 1983, Stephanie became a member of the LAPD, 
Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah. And it was around this time that she learned that John was dating other women. And this was to her surprise. She thought they were more serious. She thought they were more serious. She thought that they were exclusive, although he claims he never claimed exclusivity with her. And she was very upset because she wanted more with John. And then when he met Sherry, their relationship escalated quickly, as I recall, right? Yeah. So when John met Sherry, it became very clear to everyone around them that this relationship was serious. And in 1985, this is just shortly before John and Sherry got married, Stephanie went to John's home to beg him to come back to her. Oh. And he rejected the idea. He said he was happily, you know, with somebody else now. But the two did have sex. I remember this. Yeah. Do you remember why John says they had sex? No. He wanted to provide closure. That's not... I'm sorry. I. You know what? They had a sexual encounter and it is what it is. It is. What, yeah. Luckily. That's not an explanation for of me. Of course. But, yeah. So this happened unbeknownst to Sherry, although he would come clean to her prior to their marriage. That's right. I do remember that part. So, okay. Okay. I'll give him that. So Stephanie would often come by John's home. And now this is a home he shared with Sherry. And Sherry's not happy about this. You know, the ex-girlfriend coming by. Sherry said that Stephanie made her feel uneasy And she asked, John, please put an end to this relationship. You need to ask her to stop coming by the home. I am not comfortable with this. This is completely inappropriate. Yes. I think John was, was he just kind of a pushover? He was a, I don't know if you say, I guess we don't, we don't know him enough to say if he's pushover, but he was definitely passive, non-confrontational. He probably felt bad a little bit because he, you know, him and Stephanie were on and off for several years. And he probably felt, you know. Yeah, but if I recall correctly, there was even one incident where she came by with skis saying that she needed help fixing her skis and like he repaired them. Yeah, and he said he would do it. It's almost like enabling, right? Or leading her on in some way. I'm not sure what it is. All I can tell you is if the if it was me and this happened and, you know, James's ex was showing up for these things, it would only happen once. Yeah. This would be a quickly shut down thing. Yes. And I can imagine that Sherry was so upset and uncomfortable about and this. And she was upset and she wasn't really speaking to many people about it because she didn't want her friends to not like her new husband. She didn't want people to not trust John because she did trust him. You know, she was kind of keeping it quiet, but she was very close with her father. And Sherry did tell her father that on one occasion, Stephanie showed up at Sherry's place of employment and she told Sherry that things were not over between her and John. Also, some reports say that she said, quote, if I can't have John, no one else will. This is really troubling. So she confided into her father that she was pretty scared of Stephanie because Stephanie was stalking her. And she's a police officer. Yeah. So she's got a weapon. She's got power. Well, there was another occasion where Sherry came downstairs in her home and Stephanie was just standing there in the living room in uniform with like her gun holstered on her belt. And she was asking for John. So that's just a a show of, it's a force intimidation. I'd be, you know, I can understand why she would be very scared. I mean, it's unclear why she didn't share these concerns with John, unless John's lying, which I don't think he is. But it seems as if, I don't know if she was trying to protect him, if she was trying to just handle things on her own, or maybe she just felt like he's clearly not doing anything. I need to just figure this out on my own. Mm. Anyway, so Sherry's family knew about this and they wanted the police to look into Stephanie. But the police never did. She was never considered a suspect or even questioned. I'm going to say there's two reasons for that. One is that she's a police officer and they're thinking no way one of our own would do something like this. Mm -hmm. But secondly, she's female and they probably 
don't look at this as, you know, they probably think this is a male on female attack rather than a female has the capability of this. Gender lens, tunnel vision, confirmation bias. I'm sure our listeners are sick of hearing it, but that happens in a lot of cases. Uh, And also, yeah, they already have this idea that it was two, you know, Latino males. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I'm sure they just couldn't get away from this. And, And notes would later reveal that John had also contacted investigators asking if they had looked into Stephanie. So it wasn't just Sherry's family who were urging the police, John himself. And I'm pretty sure they just kind of shut it down. I don't know exactly what they said to him, but it is clear that they never pursued her. That's really unfortunate tunnel vision. It's very unfortunate. And because of this, the case went cold for several years. They had DNA from the scene. They just didn't have the ability to really test it beyond like saliva and and blood type, right? Correct? Well, you wouldn't believe this, Megan, but... The family, Sherry's family with her father spearheading this offered to pay for DNA testing on the evidence from the murder because we're now, you know, I said the case went cold for a little, right? Right. In early to mid 1990s, we see, you know, DNA technology is really ramping up. And at that point, that's when Sherry's family offers to pay for the DNA testing on the evidence. Right. And guess what they were told? What? So in order to proceed with the DNA testing... Sherry's family was told they needed to have a suspect and they simply did not have one. Therefore, wasn't going to happen. That's completely untrue. It makes no sense to me at all. Okay. So things go quiet again for several years. Sounds like they just didn't want to. I mean, I don't want to lay blame because I don't know it, but it just sounds like they didn't want to move past at all their original theory and like they just dismissed any alternatives. So, yep, I agree with you. Okay. Luckily, in the late 1990s, there was a new cold case unit that was being formed in the LAPD. We saw this happening all over the country as DNA technology improved. We see cold cases really gaining traction. And Sherry's case was among the cases that would be re-looked at. And this is because, remember, as we said, there was DNA collected. Not only collected, the DNA was saved. And this was promising. We're finally seeing someone taking this case seriously. But it would be several more years for things to finally move in this case. It wasn't until 2004 when a criminalist in the cold case unit took a look at the DNA. So Megan, what do you think they do? What what do you think the first thing they do with this unknown DNA is? The first thing they would do is run it through CODIS to see if there's any known offenders who have already, you know, who there would be a DNA match to. Yes, and for those of you who don't know, CODIS is the Combined DNA Index System, which is just a repository of known DNA samples. It depends. So some it's a felony charge, some it's an arrest. So it does vary, but there are, I mean, I think in CODIS now a couple million profiles. So they did not find a hit, but something very interesting emerged. The DNA, which was, again, from the saliva from the bite mark, had come from a female. Ah, And this somewhat undermines this initial burglary theory. Again, they thought, oh, maybe this third female came in, but that was just speculation. Now, They really have to, if they're going to go with the burglary theory, there's a female there. And that does not fit the MO of the other burglaries in the area at the time. And it certainly undermines the it's just two, you know, Latino males theory. So exactly. So they continue looking through the case file. Who could be a potential female suspect? I only wonder, Amy. (laughs) Well, they came across a report of a, quote, third party female who had allegedly harassed the victim at her job and residence shortly before the murder. Now, the cold case unit assumed that this person clearly must have been ruled out. How could she not have been? There was someone to look into here, but they were shocked when they found out that this third party female, in fact, had never been investigated. Now, who do you think this third party female is, Megan? This is clearly going to be Stephanie Lazarus, the 
ex-girlfriend of John Mm -hmm. who stalked and seemingly harassed and intimidated Sherry and who has a badge. Not only was she, you know, as you said, she had a badge. She was a patrol cop in the LAPD. That was when she started. Currently, she was a well-respected detective in the art theft division. And she was married to a fellow detective. Wow. So with this newly tested DNA, they needed to get Stephanie's DNA to compare it. And simply, that would rule her out. Well, it'd probably be very easy to get her DNA. She probably had her DNA almost on file as a police officer, no? You would think, but not that. That's not how they got it. Any other ideas? I mean, the usual way, a cup, a fork, a cigarette butt. Yep. So they started surveilling their coworker, and in May 2009, they collected a straw that she had thrown in a trash can. A straw. Okay. Not surprisingly, Megan, the DNA matched perfectly. On June 5th, 2009, three detectives from the cold case unit, under the guise that they had someone with info on one of her cases, invited Stephanie to a, quote, interrogation. Right, because they can't go out and arrest um, her right away, especially because she's got a firearm. So they have to also make sure that they're in a a neutral setting where they felt safe. Well, it's funny you say that. So they took her over to the jail because you have to give in your firearm before you go in. So that's why they wanted to make sure she had no firearm. But I think in in addition to that, perhaps they wanted to respect her privacy. She was one of their own and, you know, not to make a big scene. And I don't know. I think they wanted to disarm her literally and figuratively, like they wanted to literally get the gun out. But I think they also wanted to make her feel comfortable. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, we're we're just working together. And then this is going to be a really Mm -hmm. uh, interesting transition. Yeah. So when they get to the interrogation room, I think I think Stephanie's probably surprised to see that it is just her and two detectives in this room. No suspect who's giving up any information. Right. You can hear slash see the whole interrogation on our YouTube channel under the interrogations playlist. We don't talk about this often, but we have a lot of cool stuff there on our YouTube channel. We also have documentaries, dramatizations of cases that we've covered. So go check it out because it's very interesting to watch These detectives clearly knew what they were doing. They kept the conversation very cordial. It's very casual. And then they change their tone a bit when they start pressing questions about her relationship with John and Sherry. Right. Did you listen to this? Yeah, I've seen this. It's been a long time, though. I will say I haven't seen it in a while. So you'll have to refresh me. You'll hear she gets very indignant. You know, as they keep pressing her, I think she's like, oh, shit, they might be on to me. She's also like, if I recall, like, wait a second, this isn't about why are you now talking about yes. my ex-boyfriend and his, the murder yeah, she of probably his felt ex-wife. Trapped. Yeah. She kept saying she couldn't remember. It was so long ago because detectives kept saying, how did you know John? When was the last time you saw him? And she was like, oh, gosh, it was so long ago. But as they started to reveal information they knew, it was very clear that things started to unravel mm-hmm. and there were inconsistencies. And that's right. exactly what we would expect to happen. Right. It took her very long to answer some questions. She was clearly stalling. There was a lot of, I guess, maybe, perhaps. Because she knows this game, right? She didn't want to say anything definitive. At one point, it seems as though the interview is getting close to concluding. And they tell her she could leave. But, of course, she's brought right back in and read her Miranda rights. Right. And we know that when someone has read their Miranda rights... They're under arrest. They are under arrest. And she just kept saying... This is crazy. I can't believe this. This is crazy. Which I agree. It was crazy. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. And also, and this was also almost 25 years later. So she probably thought... I mean, she had a, she had a she's child. Guilty. She's climbing the ranks. Yeah, she probably you know. thought she was in the clear. Yeah. So bail was set for $10 million. $10 million, 10 okay. Million. Now, right. Stephanie pled not guilty. 
I was very surprised before we go forward with the court stuff. Okay. I've learned that she was granted an early retirement from the LAPD. You're kidding. Isn't that strange? Very strange, yeah. And I wonder if maybe that's because she was innocent till proven guilty. Maybe once convicted, that changed. I don't know. Can you take it back? I don't know. No, no. I, if she's granted early retirement, or I mean, they could have made it contingent, but it yeah. sounds like... It sounds like they probably just wanted to be done with her and didn't want, like they wanted to get rid of her. They yes. wanted to terminate her. So they're probably doing this so that they have no affiliation. They're distancing themselves. Yeah. But it is still very odd. Isn't it? Yeah, I, I, That's it why I had to make just a note of that to ask you if you've heard of that before. It's very odd. On February 6, 2012, the trial began in downtown LA and there were lots of spectators. Whenever we have a case where you have a police officer or a detective on trial, it's going to be a big deal. Oh, yeah. Now, the prosecution's main theory was that Stephanie murdered Cherry out of jealousy and heartbreak. And they argued that since she was a police officer, she knew how to break into a home. She knew how to not leave any evidence or prints behind. She knew how to muffle a gunshot. Right. And also how to stage the scene for it to appear to be a burglary. And also Sherry knew her, so probably opened the door out of fear or out of obligation Possibly. either way. Or she knew how to pick a lock or the door was left open, right? It could really be any of those. That's true, right. The prosecution did focus heavily on the bite mark because of the DNA evidence, but there was so much circumstantial evidence in this case as well. Now, she had gone to Sherry's work, so there's evidence of you know her stalking right. and harassing this woman. The bullets found were consistent with the bullets from Stephanie's firearm. I was going to ask that next. Okay. And not only that, Stephanie reported her firearm stolen about a week after the murder, saying that her car had been broken into. Okay. She had also written John, John's mom a note about how upset she was over John's new relationship. She also was happened to be off of work on the day of the murder and a few days prior. This is heavily circumstantial and, of course, scientific as well. I, I have to tell you, without the DNA, I think... This never would have come to fruition. No, never. Never would have ever. come to, you know, I don't think they ever would have like even gone into this. And I don't, I don't know that they would have even brought a, a court case. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of forensic testimony and some of it got a bit complicated. Um, so I'm just going to do my best to explain some of the highlights here. Okay. I want you to understand that there was not only the bite mark DNA. There was yep. more DNA. Okay. There was a broken fingernail found at the scene and it contained DNA from three people. Sherry, Stephanie, and a third unknown person. But it was considered at a lower level, so it was considered casual, possibly casual contact. This could be anyone. This could be a friend, a family member. It, this doesn't mean anything. Okay. There was another fingernail that showed two people, Sherry and another unknown. However, this was kind of weak and inconsistent. They had a lot of different experts testifying, you know, the one in, you know how they do that this could be one in a million. This could be one in 500,000. I think the point was, is that she seemed to be a minor contributor to many of the samples from the scene, meaning that they couldn't say that it was definitely Stephanie's DNA. However, the bite mark DNA, one in 100 quadrillion chance that it was not Stephanie's DNA from the bite mark. So it almost didn't, like, the prosecution is. was pretty much saying like, okay, yes, the defense is bringing up all of these, you know, it could be this, could be that, there could be a third person. Yes, but her bite mark, you can't argue that evidence. There it is. That's it. Also, none of Stephanie's fingers were matched in the home or the car. Again, of course not, because Stephanie knows how to not leave fingerprints behind. But also, even if they were, Ames, she'd been to the house. I mean, we know that you can find fingerprints and other DNA from people who've been in your house, you yeah, know? Absolutely right. Every contact leaves a trace, so. Absolutely. And John testified 
about Stephanie and her behavior before and after the murder. She was in contact with John after the murder. I'm not sure if the two hooked up. They did take a trip together at one point, but they had mutual friends, so I'm not sure exactly. You know, I'm wondering if Stephanie's idea was to move in. Of course. Kind of, and, you know, get John, or was she just, like, satisfied that, like, Sherry was out of the no, way. No, I think she wanted to move in. It reminds me of, um, we covered, uh, remember Sheila Davalu? Of course. Yeah, she yeah. she moved in after to comfort and console, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the person whose spouse mm-hmm. or girlfriend she had murdered. I think that was also Stephanie's idea was she was going to console John and this would, I think, lead to their, you know, rekindling their romance. And Stephanie's journal played a big part. It was admitted into evidence as a way to show evidence of Stephanie's obsession with John and her sadness over his new relationship. Mm. The defense did not have much to go on. They mainly focused on Stephanie's accomplishments because she was in the LAPD for 26 years with many awards and no issues. I mean, they really focused on character witnesses, people who said that, you know, she was never violent, people that said they saw Stephanie around the time of the murder and she didn't have any, you know, defensive wounds on her. Right. Um, There was also implied that there were issues in Sherry and John's relationship and that John was actually the one who was contacting Stephanie. We see them do, you know, defenses. They're trying to, you know, they're grasping at straws here. Well, they're trying to muddy the waters, too. It's what defense attorneys do. I mean, they have to. They're defending their client. Yeah. And they, you know, like I said, they were really focused on fingerprint and palm prints and hairs from the scene that didn't match Stephanie. Again, who cares? This could have been anyone else who's been in that home at any point, right? The defense is going to have to talk about the star witness of the DNA bite mark evidence, right? So what do they do with this? Well, they said that it hadn't been stored correctly. I was going to say, I mean, the only thing they can do is try to discredit the analysis, you know, taint the, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a tainted sample. It's although bite mark analysis. Oh, the DNA was there. It's not bite mark analysis. They never ended up doing. Yeah, because we can talk about how bite mark analysis is a junk science. It it completely. But they didn't even bother doing the casting of it. So they were just going off the DNA. The only thing they can possibly do is that the DNA was tainted. That's it. They suggested that someone may have tampered with it because there was a hole in the envelope where the vial was stored. Now, I'm not sure if they're suggesting that somebody's out to get Stephanie, so they put her DNA there or what, but this just seems very unlikely. They were really, you know, the defense is hanging on the old theory. It was a botched robbery, although the judge wouldn't allow them to bring up the other burglaries in the area at the time. They were just too dissimilar. I mean, they took jewelry. They had a getaway vehicle. There were signs of for- there were signs of forced entry. In other words, the judge said the MOs don't even match. Like we're not bringing this in. It's irrelevant. That's really interesting because another judge might have said, "Well, this is you know this is a defense. You know, you're mm-hmm. allowed to point to somewhat of a credible other scenario." Yeah. He's saying it wasn't credible. Right. I mean, I it's I agree, but I think this is a discretionary thing. So another judge. Could have been a 50-50 flip of the coin that they said, yeah. And we also don't know how much that would have impacted the jury. They could have been like, this isn't relevant, or they could have taken it, you know, weighed it heavily. Of course, yeah. So, Amy, I've heard a lot about the DNA and everything, but, you know, the burning question here for me is, did Stephanie take the stand? She did not, nor do I think she should have. Right. Okay. I didn't think so either, but I just wanted to know before we get to the conclusion here. Based on what we know about her personality and what she sounds like in the interrogation, I feel like she would have come off as cocky or defensive. It's usually a good call. I just wasn't sure if she was going to try to get out there. Okay. After three weeks, the trial concluded and the jury deliberated for about a day and a half. And on March 8th, 2012, Stephanie was officially found guilty of murder. 
not really surprising, right? I don't think it's a surprise, no. 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 I, I will be cur- uh, curious, though, as to what her sentence is, yeah. So two months later, she was sentenced to 27 to life. Uh, so 27 to life. So that means that she has the possibility of parole after probably 20 plus years. And she's probably at that point going to be in her, I would estimate, 70s. Okay, so we can dive into that during Did the System Get It Right? But I think I know what we're both going to say here. Okay. I, the only thing I want to say before we get to that is that she has not won any of her appeals. In 2015, there was a ruling upholding her conviction. A three-justice panel from California's 2nd District Court of Appeals rejected her claim that the delay in bringing charges against her violated her due process rights. Oh, that's a bogus. I mean, but appeals appeals are also, you know, like if they didn't, especially if they had no issues at trial, like there's no problems, then they have to find some appealable issue. Yeah, there were also, you know, they also denied some other claims by the defense the defense said that search warrants used to search her homes weren't obtained correctly, that jurors should not have heard of a tape of her being interviewed by the LAPD detectives before her arrest. So I guess there were some other tapes of her that were admitted okay. into evidence. All right. The decision further noted that the DNA profile, quote, precisely matched the profile of the person who bit Rasmussen shortly before her death. Right. So it's kind of like the mic drop. Like, come on. <laughs> right? Yeah. And more recently, the California Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Stephanie will be eligible for parole in 2034. So that's exactly what I was saying about 20 plus years. So that's 22 years in and from when we're recording this about 12 years from now. Got it. Okay. So what do we think, Megan? I mean, is Stephanie a sociopath? Is she antisocial, narcissistic, borderline? I mean, I don't think we can say at all because we don't know much about her history or patterns of behavior in everyday life. I mean, it's clear that she is a pathological liar. Perhaps she's manipulative, but, you know, we can't really speculate without knowing more. To be honest, I can't, I wouldn't nail her down theoretically, and I I wouldn't even try because, you know, sometimes it's okay when we have like these, you know, pretty clear theories, but with Stephanie, I'm not quite sure. I mean, she wanted John, it seems like, at any cost. She was extremely angry, extremely hurt, and I think she just saw you know, Sherry as eliminate the competition, you know, get rid of the obstacle. Rational choice theory. I mean, she, obviously it's not rational, but it is. Yeah, she planned this, obviously. I really think there's... Do you think there's control balance at all? There's control balance because she could waive her control. So control balance theory when someone has, you know, too much power, too much control. So yeah, she was able to intimidate Sherry through this control of the badge, right? Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of rational choice here in that she planned this. She knew what to do. And I think she really thought about the consequence later um, of, you know, if I do this, if I clean up this way, if I make it look this way, I can get back in John's life. So Mm -hmm. I I do see rational choice. I couldn't tell you if she's a sociopath. There could be a little bit of strain because we could say that John marrying Sherry was, you know, removal of a positive stimuli in her eyes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, strain usually applies, like we say. To almost um, everything. <laughs> no, it's true. It does. Yeah. But I think there's more to I, I it agree. than that. I you totally know? agree. Do you think this was very much premeditated? Or Absolutely. I was thinking that too, that 1, there's no doubt. This is why I think rational choice too, because with mm-hmm. some crimes we see, they're kind of like, you know, even if it's somewhat planned, it's very clumsy mm-hmm. and it's yep. not a lot. I bet she was thinking about this for quite some time. She had to have surveilled the house. She had to have known when John was going to leave. She mm-hmm. had to know Sherry was going to be home that day. How did she know that? Mm-hmm. S- completely premeditated. Now, 
I also think it's interesting to think about the likelihood of her reoffending. So she's she's going to be aged out of crime when she gets out. So I don't think she's the kind of offender who poses a general risk to society, meaning like I don't know that she's inherently violent, but I think she's the kind of person if things don't go her way, she'll do whatever's necessary to fix that problem. And that's what worries me is when she gets out, if she's if she's in a relationship or somebody leaves her, you know, will this happen again? That would worry. That certainly is a concern. If she was in her 40s or 50s, I'd be much more concerned about that because she'll probably get out, I think, in her 70s. I'm not as concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think she will have aged out of crime. But let me just say again, if this was her getting out at 50, I'd have the exact same concern and I would be worried that mm-hmm. that would happen again. So the system get it right? I mean, no, not for almost 25 years. I think there's, you know, tunnel vision. They did not even consider any other options. They made up their mind what happened. Now, is this a cover-up? Were they protecting their own? It's either they were either incompetent or it was a cover-up, either corruption or incompetency. I think, take your pick. I'll take my pick. I think it was yeah. incompetence. I incompetency. don't think this is corruption. I agree. This might be, it's not corruption. They, they might have actually thought, she's a police officer. Of course, this can't be her. I don't think it's corruption. I think that might have been kind of ignorance in that way. Yeah. But I think it's incompetence that led to this. And I don't think that Sherry's family should have had to wait 25 years to look at the most obvious suspect. I mean, given her relationship to John, she should have at least been questioned. At, at the, the very, very least. least. And then they would have seen she doesn't have an alibi and then it could have gone from there. I, I mean, this was incompetence and tunnel vision to yeah. me. Amy, I also think, in fairness, we talked about this through the gender lens, but also, you know, this accusation of, you know, or the assumption that it was these two Latino males. I want to say this reflects some racism as well. And I think... At the time in the area, there was, um, you know, were some racial tensions Mm -hmm. between um, people in the community who may have felt that particularly Hispanic Mm -hmm. immigrants were taking their jobs. So I think there was a bias. And I think it was easier to lay blame at, you know, this idea of two Mm -hmm. Latino males than it was, you know, our white female officer. It reminds me a bit of Sherry Papini lying and saying that two Hispanic women had kidnapped her because if you recall, that created a lot of racial tension because people were, they were looking for these two women. They were, you know, all women who, or all people who fit that profile were really being harassed. Absolutely. It does remind me of that. So I do think there's elements of, you know, there's the gender lens. There's I Mm -hmm. do think there's the race lens and all of this, almost like a perfect storm in this case. Yeah. But either way, I think at the end of the day, you know, there has been justice served um, for Sherry's death. Unfortunately, it took very long. And I hope that her family now has some closure. And hopefully Stephanie will make good use of her time. I hope she will too. I don't, I, I recently like heard, you know, it, we've talked about this before, but I don't know if they'll ever get closure Yeah. Um, because there's, it's hard to really get, you know, that's a word that of people course. use, yeah. but hopefully it gives them some sense of peace and maybe some restoration, you know. Anyway, Amy, regardless, thank you for bringing us this case today. Thank you, patrons, for wanting to hear this case and for all of our other listeners who reached out about this case. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. 
You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Vanity Fair, People, The Associated Press, The Atlantic, and The LA Times.